Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichette. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, February 16th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's choosing to join us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated worksheet process and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through that worksheet process, and they can serve as a tutorial for you to get maximum benefit out of these tools in the shortest amount of time possible. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563 
999-3581. When you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll then be able to turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service. And if you are not able to call, you can send an email at tjhmindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. So, Here we are just um, chugging away on another Friday, and we have a hand up. Susan? Hi. I wondered if you had found the, found the transcript of that um, podcast. Yes, uh, I did. The reading of Amanda. You did? Yes. <clears throat> Boy, it deserves hearing again if that was in your plan. I did listen to it, and it's absolutely life-changing, this idea of um, what Elizabeth Gilbert called um, two-way prayer or those letters. Writing a letter anyway. for unconditional love. Yes, letting, letting yeah. love, unconditional love, write you a letter. Yep. Mm-hmm. So just so the uh, little little background for this, just in case people are just listening to this show and haven't listened to others, there's a podcast titled We Can Do Hard Things. And it's with Glennon Doyle, her wife Abby, and Glennon's sister, Amanda. Mm. And episode 281 has the content we're going to reference here. Back in uh, 268 and 269 or something like that, you can find it, they had Elizabeth Gilbert on to talk about the two-way prayer exercise she does every day or the letting unconditional love write her a letter exercise she does every day. And in those two episodes, they share... Abby's letter from love and Glennon's letter from love and they're very powerful all by themselves I I have read Glennon's letter from love at least once on the internet show and um, I, I think it's an absolutely wonderful addition and expansion to the definition of forgiveness that we use in this work which is the dismantling of judgments and false perceptions within ourselves. And Amanda is Glennon's sister, and Glennon says, you know, the smartest person she knows, I believe she's an attorney. She's also very, you know, um, in her head, not very into her heart space and intuition. And so 
after that, those two episodes where Abby and Glennon shared their letters, Liz Gilbert made an agreement with Amanda that Amanda would give it a try. And and they picked a date that she would do it by such and such a date. And what happened was, um, in that last week before she was supposed to be done with it, she was wrestling with it and agonizing over it and hadn't gotten it done. And I, I said yesterday, I think, on the show that uh, that she got sick. Apparently it was one of her children that got sick and was throwing up a lot. And so she finally called Liz Gilbert and said, I can't do it, I can't you know, let, listen to love with all of this throwing up noise going on. And Liz said, don't worry about it, take another a week. And so then she did, and she did finally sit down and and do some writing where you just write on the, sh- uh, on the sheet of paper, dear love, what would you have me know today? And then you just let love answer. And you just write until your heart's content. Well, she did that, and she sent it off to... Um, Liz Gilbert and her people, and she had no idea at that time that the date they had scheduled to release Amanda's letter was Super Bowl Sunday. And she sent this letter, and she's not a sports fan. She's She doesn't talk in sports analogies. This is the last thing anybody would ever expect from her. And when she sat down to write a letter from Love, This is what happened. Dear Honey Bunny, you have never asked to hear from me, so you're afraid that I will have nothing to say. For weeks now, before you go to bed, when you wake up, you've been asking love to show up, but deep down, you don't believe I will have anything to offer. You keep thinking that brain, your brain, will be the one that you'll have to rely on for anything worth reporting. You're finally asking love to come play on the field. To have faith in myself as a walk-on. But even while you say it, you're eyeing your star player on the bench And you know it's just a matter of minutes before I fail to deliver and you pull Brain in the game to get the job done. Why is Brain the star? Is it because she's run so many plays, she's scored so many times, she's brought home so many championships? Is it because your walls are lined with her glories? Your security exists because she has consistently converted in the clutch? Is it because people look at the varsity letter that Brain has delivered and they call you good? I understand why you put Brain in the game. I understand why you trust her with every important play. I love her too. But if I, love, am never in the game, I can never make a play. I would, though. My plays would be so glorious. 
you would call this game by an entirely new name. You might just watch me play once and then retire altogether. You'd go and do a completely new thing because you'd have finally seen the glory you've been incessantly striving for, and it would be so effortless and so beautiful that you would know there is no more for you to do. Your work would be done, and you could rest. I have so much to say to you. Please ask Brain to go back to the corner in the locker room for a well-deserved break so you and I can play without you constantly looking back, second-guessing your lineup. What I want to say to you is that it could have been easier than all of this. You have been struggling so hard, so gallantly, to win and for so long. But very tragically and very miraculously, what I need to tell you is that no one has been keeping score other than you. Darling one, there is no score other than the one you've been tallying in your head. What if I told you that the reason we meet on this field together is just to be on this field together? I know this is blowing your mind. I know you can't possibly believe what I'm saying to you. What if you could indulge me for just a moment and consider this possibility? We come to this field to play, to come to this field to play, period. How would you play if you knew that playing was the point? How would you play if playing wasn't a means to winning, but the end in itself. Would silliness, satisfiability, and peace, and risk, and adventure, and softness get to play the whole game instead of just the last 60 seconds when your sure brain and grit and judgment and long-suffering have already locked down the win? Would even waste of time who's been suspended every season, get to suit up? You love brain, and so do I. She loves you as much as I do. She wants to play well for you. But have you noticed how tired she is? Have you noticed how lonely she is with no one else to play with? And there's more, love. I feel like you are so insistent to win, you maybe confuse who you are playing with and confuse that with who you're playing against. And darling, what I need you to know is you're not playing against anyone. There is only playing or not playing. There is no playing against. But you you get confused. This happens with your husband. You look at him sometimes with eyes that say that you think he's not playing with you but against you. 
You see his plays and you get mad. You want him to push as hard as you are. You're mad that he didn't train like you did, that he can't remember the play you've run a thousand times. Now he's sitting on the bench by satisfiability, and they're staring blankly, wondering if you will ever let them on the field at the same time, if you will ever be satisfied with him or anything else. Do you know they've both wondered why they keep coming out for this team? I understand that to you, they seem nuts. Why aren't they playing to win? But please understand that to them, you seem nuts because you're the only one keeping score. And you keep score. You are keeping score very meticulously. I know you don't know how to stop keeping score, how to refrain from compulsively tallying the wrongs and slights and disappointments against you and counting. At least someone is counting how hard you're trying. But have you noticed how boring, exhausting, and annoying the scorekeeping has become for you? I wonder what you would start seeing if you could watch the whole game instead of having your head buried in the scorebook. Have you noticed that every challenging play your kids run is, to you, a game of survival? You play to exhaustion and injury for them so that everything will be okay. But what if I told you this? Everything is already okay. Now, later, and forever. What if I told you that there is no elimination game? This is not an elimination game. That the whole point is for the kids to stay on the field and keep playing, and that maybe they are more likely to keep playing and let all of their players join the team if they know that losing isn't possible. Baby doll, I know this is deeper than that. I know how critical you, your pretend score is to you. It's how you know that you've tried your best. It's how you know you've done enough. How you know you are worthy. That without the score, you are lost because then there's no way you'd ever be able to look at yourself and say, I've done enough to make myself worthy of this life. I've done enough to love, provide for, and protect my people. My people are safe enough. The fiction of the score is as vital as breath to you because it is, it is as close as you will ever feel to safety, as close as you will ever feel to rest, as close as you will ever feel to worthy. But Amanda... I am that love. You think I have nothing to say, that I have no plays up my sleeve, but look wider. I am the entire reason you show up on this field. I am the commissioner. The stadium is named after me. It is me in you that has you showing up so unrelentingly on that field, strategizing training, recruiting, sacrificing. It is the love in you that has you so hell-bent to win. Without me, you wouldn't even be playing this game. 
And when you tally up your made-up score, I am what you think you are winning. I am the reward you are not resting for. I am the safety that you are desperately striving for. I am what you are trying to be worthy of. But I'm here already. There is no way to win me. And there is no way to lose me. You already have me. All I want to do is watch you play. I know this is hard for you to imagine, so I'm going to paint you a picture. You know how Taylor looks down at Travis on the field and it's all bright red lips in a glory of unabashed joy and pride and revelry? That's me watching you play. I have never been so proud of anyone ever. And that will be true even if you decide to keep fighting against an imaginary adversary, even if you keep only playing with brain, even if you burden yourself with the stress of a made-up score forever. And that will be true if you decide to throw all of that away and start the underdog, even if every pass gets intercepted because you're too distracted by my awe for you, too busy beating me bracelets. When people see this love we share, they will look at us with disgust and disbelief and say, that's too good to be true. And you will throw heart hands up at my box and we will wink together and say, yes, that's the point. We can't lose. Me in you, signed, love. I hope people can see all the different ways this is mirroring what way of mastery is calling us to. You are the love you're looking for. You cannot lose. It's your judgments that create your pain. It's any perception you have that you're being judged or you're screwing things up or that you're keeping score because if you do it the right way, you might win something. You're already whole and complete just as you are. Way of Mastery says over and over again, you remain as you were created to be. You and your creator are one. So, yes, Susan, I did find it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Have you tried it yourself? You mean this letting love write me a letter? Yeah. Is that, the, that what you're asking? I have not done that yet. I haven't done that recently. I have done similar things in the past. I will most likely, you know, w with this kind of um, stimulus and motivation and invitation, I will most likely try it. I have subscribed to the Substack, so that's why I can get a transcript like that before it's actually posted on the 
mm. on their website. I got it last night mm. because I, I paid a little bit of money to subscribe to Liz Gilbert's substack for this very process of letters from love. And it's not that Liz Gilbert is looking to make money off of this. It's that she understands there is so much that happens in people trolling and and sending negative comments and things. And she's learned over the years that people will not pay good money just to send insults. Mm. So that's why she has a a small fee for the Substack so that she can open that up to people that... And then she's inviting anybody who's written their letter from love to share it on that Substack, and then they can comment on each other's posts, and that's a way of giving people the reasonable assurance that they're not going to be faced with all kinds of negative comments and trashing of their work, etc. I'm glad you said that. I looked at that and saw that she was charging and haven't decided to join it. Not that we couldn't afford it, but that it was just, it was as if if I pay for it, then I'm going to have to pay attention to it and I'm already paying attention to a lot of things. So I've been thinking about whether I want to add that or not. But it's good to hear about why she's charging for it. <clears throat> that makes, us, makes sense. Well, and, you know, it isn't really a needed thing. You're doing lots of stuff already that, mm-hmm. as as we've talked about, each of us in our journeys in our paths has to make a decision about what is the next thing I do and is it useful for me on my path or is it just a distraction? Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a way of looking at some of these things that says, you know, um, my signing up for another book to read or another class to take or another meditation practice to do at some point in time, I have to consider, is this just spiritual bypass? Oh, yeah. I think about that a lot. So many things are so tantalizing. You could just get lost in all these wonderful tracks, and it's good to pick a track and stay on it. And I feel as if I've done that with the radio show, and I use that as an excuse to not work with somebody who really wants to show me her or his work. Tim Bingham is seeing a therapist that I saw for a while, liked her very much, but didn't feel as if it was a good fit as far as just some kind of discomfort I felt. And so I stopped working with her, and I think it was... You know, it was hard to to back off and hard to explain, and I don't know quite what she thinks of the fact that I didn't continue working with her, but I've always come back to the tools. That seems to be the center pole of my work. But this, last night I woke up in the middle of the night, as I often do, and I thought, well, I'm going to do that, right, just with my thoughts. 
okay, love, say something. And love started yapping right away. It really is an amazing thing. And the fact that she had, Amanda had so many doubts about whether this voice was for real and could she trust it. And she, all of that was, it was like making way for me to have those doubts and already just say, oh yeah, those have been, those have been voiced already by a very credible person. So I'm just going to go for this and listen to what's said. And what struck me the most is it was nothing like Amanda's letter. And I thought it was, my brain was telling me, it better be as good as Amanda's. But she's so smart. I don't think I'm as smart as that. So this won't be as good. All of that got set aside. And the, the voice that spoke to me was my voice. And it had a really good effect. Didn't last very long. I went back to sleep. But it wasn't my usual middle-of-the-night ruminating. It was very different. And I just want to go back there because it's now a, a solid resource. So I'm really glad you told us about this. I had listened to the first two of the love letters, and I thought, oh, that's great. But this one, the fact that Amanda was a brain person, and I tend to want to use my mind to figure things out all the time, I identified very strongly with her. And so, anyway, this is terrific. And the fact that it's woven into the radio show helps, too, because I trust the radio show. Well, you know, I I, I want people to uh, understand that... Uh, the, the parallels between the, the messages that we're invited into with the way of mastery, the idea of how from the very beginning, even before, even before the, the lessons start, the, um, the promise says to begin this work, just put aside everything you think you know. There's the whole thing about put brain on the sidelines for now. Right. Put away everything you think you want and find a way to look lovingly on every place that fear or any negative judgment has made a home in your mind. So understand that everything has been okay. All of that scorekeeping doesn't need to be there. It's not valid. All of that is contained right there in the promise before the way of mastery even gets started. It's exactly, Mm -hmm. to my eye and ear, what's happening in this letter from love to Amanda. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, Liz talks about a number of different things that are just really, really solid and important to say, look, Liz Gilbert does this practice, has been doing it, you know, she says, every day for 20-some years. Wow. And one of the things things she says about it is you really want to understand that many, many times what love says to her is, Take a nap. 
Drink a glass of water. Lie down. Relax. We'll look at this again tomorrow. You know, it's not like every time this happens, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Or it's you're getting the Ten Commandments on a tablet that you have to give the world. And, And the messages that you get will be tailored specifically to what's most in resonance for you. Liz has said, you know, she's been doing it so long and had such good results over so much time that she tends now to just do whatever it suggests that she does, especially when she doesn't want to do it. And she gave a story. She told a story about how there was a a time not too long ago where she had had a a long-standing you know gap in a relationship she was not talking to this person and this person wasn't talking to her and mm. when she did her letter from love love said you know um go get a plane ticket go visit this person and make amends and liz's response was no certainly not today and love said yeah and today's a good day get a plane ticket and go well because she'd been doing it long enough she realized that it was coming so strongly to her and it was clear that that's what was being said from love she said okay well i'll go do it but i'm not even going to tell the person i'm coming hoping that you know when she gets there to this other city the woman isn't there and But she did it, and she showed up without any announcement. And the woman was there, and she was homesick, and she answered the door, and she said, within a couple minutes, we were sobbing in in each other's arms. And she said, this is a person I never, ever would have imagined for the rest of my life that we would be reconciling. So it's not something you're going to be able to predict. It's exactly what the way of mastery is calling us to from even the promise before the letters start. It's specifically what it talks about even more in Lesson 3 where it talks about the power of forgiveness and dismantling judgments and dismantling perceptions and asking to be shown. You know, I'm, I, I just want to say again what I was saying yesterday or the day before whenever it was that this came up You know, you talk about, I'm trying to bend desire so that Mm -hmm. I start to desire what I think I should desire. And that's not the point of desire in the way of mastery. The point is not that I bend it with my mind to what I think it should be. The point is that I learn to put mind on the sideline and tune in to what love or desire or higher being or my true self or you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit or Ruka de Kucha, whatever wants to flow through me that I'm not manufacturing with my brain. Mm. Uh, well, fear came up right away when and I heard that story too about Liz visiting her long lost estranged friend and I thought, I have often feared 
hearing from God because God might tell me to go to some nether country and give up my life and, you know, and that came to mind again. Would I have done that? I'm not sure I would have. So anyway, that's okay, but, but listen, listen, listen to the point of those stories, right? Wherever they come from, wherever they are. Mm. The point of those stories is not, and then my life was ruined. The yeah. point of those stories is, and then everything went beautifully like I could never have imagined. Yeah. So the fear that I generate, you know, in this podcast, Abby asked Amanda, was there ever any time where, where you heard this voice in your life prior to this or other than this? And Amanda said, yes, there were two times. One was when she was getting out of high school or college, I forget which one, and she just knew she needed to go to Ireland. And then another time when she needed to do whatever this thing was, it took her to some you know, African country. And she said, mm-hmm. that that's part of how I know it's not my brain figuring that there's never w- would anybody with a brain have been sorting out here this Amanda needs to go to some African country for this. It would never have happened. And she just felt like she's got to do it. Well, it's not like, and then she did that and everything was ruined. It's that she did that and things worked out better than she could have imagined. That's the point of those stories. So the the, the point I'm trying to make here is that Whenever we generate this fear, this is also right from the way of mastery. Whenever we generate fear, it's false. It means we have just given power to that little shadow that temporarily seemed to have cast a shadow on a little rock in some, you know, elevated mountain getaway. Mm. Mm. It's not accurate. If there is fear spinning in my mind, it's not real. Now, you know, if I have a um, an impulse to jump off of a curve right before some car might be coming, or to, yeah, I just follow the impulse. It's a physical, you know, survival level thing. That's fine. And yet. If I'm sitting thinking about something and generating fear about it, it's not the truth. So just breathe into that and soften and think. This is what Way of Mastery is calling us to, right? To be conscious of, to be vigilant about all of these thoughts prior, even prior to every breath. And recognize that we are generating our own thoughts about things and choosing which ones we value and pouring mind energy into them. And that's what's creating our experience of life and our emotions. And whenever we do that and it generates fear, it's false. It's no more real than the effect of a, that tiny little shadow cast by that blade of grass on that rock. There's something else in there, and I, can't, I don't know how to explain it. 
maybe God just knew that Amanda would be vital enough or willing enough to take that. Oh, no, that was Liz, but Liz, okay. She'd be willing to take a trip like that. No, that was Amanda. Um, it was Amanda, okay. Um, but But listen, but listen, this is what we're saying. If you ask and unconditional love tells you and writes you and gets that energy going through you, that means you will be vital enough for whatever it's recommending. And it's not going to set you up to fail. I'm not even thinking about the failure. I'm thinking about not wanting to go. (laughs) just don't want to do that. Okay, but here's the point. If you ask and it wells up in you, you will want to go. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not going to torture you. Love is always going to fit who I am. That's right. That's right. It just wants to play with you. Mm-hmm. It wants you God, thanks. Yeah. to be joyful. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the way of mastery says this so many times that the one will of the creator is that you be full of joy and playfulness that you be in delight moment to moment that you live from the awareness of your true nature as you know part and parcel of the one creative mind mm-hmm. The will of the creator is not what man has told you about in your God-based religions that, you know, if you get it wrong, you're going to get punished and go to hell. There is no, there's no keeping score. Right? If, if, if you pay attention to teachings like this one, there is no hell that you're going to be condemned to. There, is no, there isn't the uh, gaslighting that exists in so many religions where the religion says, you know, our God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, and if you screw up, he is going to condemn you to hell for the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. What kind of gaslighting is that? What kind of a loving God is going to give you an impulse to go do something, and then if you can't resist that impulse sentence you to an eternity of torture Mm. that's a human made God that's in a set of ideas (laughs) created by humans about the potential of a God a creator that's just as crazy as any narcissistic gaslighting you will ever encounter (laughs) Please see that. You know, Michael Wright said this in one of his original lectures where he said, you know, this is how when you have this this changing of the meaning of words and this distortion of a message, you can have people who go out on the crusades and they say, "Um, we're going to this new land and we're going to take them the the message of our, you know, all-powerful, all-loving God, and if they won't accept it, we're just going to have to kill them. What were you saying? 
I had a friend once, this came as an analogy, and it's kind of crazy. It's a medical analogy. It's what love does. I had a friend who had a kind of skin cancer, and she needed to have a series of biopsies. What they would do is they'd take the slimmest layer and test it, and she'd have to sit and wait while they analyzed it. And they'd come yeah, back. Yeah, the Mohs procedure. What? It's called the Mohs procedure. Oh, okay. So you already know. Okay. Just that they, what you keep doing is taking another sliver of the cancerous thinking that I have and taking another layer until finally, let's hope, we get to that place where there's all only healthy, receptive, trusting tissue. That's a good way to think about it. Just keep working at it. Just keep, you know, practicing the vigilance and commitment that the way of mastery is inviting us to and understanding that it needs to happen prior to every breath. It's not a a one-and-done thing. Enlightenment Mm. is not some award you gain or some finish line you cross. It is a prior-to-every-breath decision to be in the flow of life, to stay connected consciously to your true nature as love, and let that be your guidance in each new present moment. Mm. So I hope, against hope, that it is resonating well for people that you can see the multiple layers of similarity or identical message from this reading of this letter from unconditional love to Amanda and the idea that there is no score being kept except in your mind if you are judging yourself as bad or wrong or anyone or anything else that Mm -hmm. You're the only one doing that. And in doing it, you block yourself from this direct experience of life and love itself. And you create the tightness and the tension that goes with the judgment and the negativity. And that's the only thing that creates that in your energy system. I'm, you know, the first three or four times that I heard this and read this, I was crying through half of it. Mm-hmm. I I don't even know exactly why I was crying, just kind of a release, a relaxation, a, a gratitude mm-hmm. for just a, yet another way to say the very same thing that Way of Mastery is saying over and over again, that the Course in Miracles has in it, that uh, Diedrich Wolzak has in his work. And I, you know, I... 
I'm grateful that this message is getting out there more and more. Mm. And if it was just a little bit shorter, I would probably launch into reading it again right now. But I will... uh, I'll make a copy of it available on my mindshiftersacademy.org website, as I have done with a number of those things from uh, Glennon and and their show. So, any other comments? or invitations to other listeners to the show today? Are you asking that to me, Dr. Tim? To you, yep. Oh, no, thanks. Just, it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful tool. Well, while you're you're asking love to respond has already yielded some wonderful results I'm going to encourage you to do the written part too because that's just like with the mind shifter you know if I if I do the mind shifter and just let it run in my head I get one level of impact and if I make the commitment to take an action that Mm -hmm. has me writing it down I get a whole different level of impact Right. So again, I'll remind us, call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1 on your phone, we'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. And I can turn on the microphone and we can have a conversation. Something weird going on on the switchboard. I've got one person, the same number, up twice. Wow. And I'm trying to turn on the microphone for area code 541, and it's not going yet. So... Please bear with us. Um, no one in the chat room, so that may not be working. I don't know. But area code 541, are you in the air? Yes, I am. How are you two this morning? Welcome. I'm doing this well. This is Linda. Yes, and Susan, um, I'm so glad that you're on the phone, and thank you for every question you asked today, and thank you, Dr. Tim, for reading that, um, because I think I'm going to start doing that, too. Um, It fits the way of mastery so beautifully, and it's so uniquely targeted for each one of us because we're initiating it, and um, we're opening our relationship with the divine, and the divine is as ecstatic as we are or will be as we continue, (laughs) and thank you. 
I also wanted to um, share a thought that we had talked about a couple of days ago, I think it was, when, Susan, you said that um, um, you thought it was really sweet that I called you all those endearing terms, but you that I didn't mean it, and that usually when people, uh, it feels like hypocrisy. And I was uh, trying to share with you at that moment how I like this middle path, the middle way is seeming to call to me in relation to expanding my horizons and into relation to in relation to acceptance of myself and others. And maybe there are times when I realize that I don't feel this or there's resistance or it feels fake to me. And I just do it anyway because in light of this letter today and the um, unconditional love telling me it doesn't matter, it's all a play, it's the sandbox, um, I can accept myself as I am in whatever state I am and open to that. And so I wanted to share that with you. Um, just uh, the rainbow of all possibilities instead of focusing like a chicken, as I think I said the other day to Michael, like a chicken with its nose on on the white chalk line, hypnotized, trying to go with the brain and say, oh, this is what I have to do. This is the right way. This is the perfect way. Um, So I wanted to share that. The other little tidbit I wanted to share was when I was in college, I did a term report once on the difference on the Roman Church and the um, Greek Orthodox Church. And one of the things that stayed with me all along was the compassion, which is the focus of the Eastern Church, whereas judgment is the focus of the Western uh, Roman Church, and so I thought I'd share that. I was just so drawn to that way back when I was a born again, uh, and just sure that hell and damnation existed, and I'd better have my nose, my beak on the white chalk one. So I wanted to share that with you because this is delightful. I am, I am just throwing sand all over the place in my sandbox. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A new castle to be built. Mm. Well, uh, Celinda, forgive me for saying what I said, which sounds as if it hurt you in some way, and I, I didn't mean to do that. I just have my own uh, not hey, very sweetheart. <laughs> No apologies needed. That was exactly what I wanted to hear. It was exactly the little tidbit that I um, that helped me to just expand a little bit more of into acceptance of self and others because it's it's a, a swinging door and I can't do either one without doing it to the other. And so that was perfect, perfect. Well, I'm glad oh, it was perfect. That's you doing. That's your doing. It's good going. <laughs> I want to share with you also about the word want. You know, the, I think of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, the uh, um, the Psalm. Um, 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And one day I was reading that and I thought, all that word means is lack. Every time I'm wanting something, I lack. That's not desire. That's saying, oh, my God, I don't have it. And so I've been, I just happen to be watching that word along with shoulds, <laughs> my shoulds and my wants and my needs and have-tos and ought-tos. And, and I've been laughing uh, at how often and how deeply embedded they are in my languaging. And so I just encourage you. You are so precious you can't imagine. <laughs> so I encourage us all. You too, Dr. Tim. Okay, I'll join. <laughs> me, me too. Me too. It's it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of a me too movement. It's all of this, all of us <laughs> blessing and yeah. allowing and accepting our true nature and the true nature of that which has given rise to us. So, so thank you, thank you both. Um, we're down to about oh three minutes total. If there's any last comments either of you would like to make before we have to make the switch over to the second hour, please do so now. Okay. Well, I pass. I don't have any more to say. Over to you. What is there to say when we're complete, right? Not in the moment. I don't know if complete, but pretty much down in the mouth or aghast or whatever. It's all good, sweetheart. <laughs> well, I will mute you both so you can listen to the second hour. Thank you both for your comments and statements, and and I will um, I'll invite us all to have a wonderful weekend. This is uh, a Friday, so we won't have another show until uh, on Monday. And I am just in case anybody is. Uh, following on the mindshiftersacademy.org website where I have been posting some of these shows this this year where we're I'm editing out the first hour and putting up the way of mastery shows quite a bit behind now I think the last uh, the last time I did that was several weeks ago and I will endeavor to get some of that done in the near future it may not be uh, all caught up by the end of the weekend but I'm working on it. And I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love. And everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tam. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Blessings. So welcome everybody to the second hour of MindShifters Radio, and today is Friday, February the 16th, 2024, and our calling number is 563-999-3581. Press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show, and we'll give Michael just a moment to dial in. And I'll just say today is day number 25, day number 25 of the Enlightenment study. And yesterday, Michael was reading from the book, The End of Suffering, that he has written, and uh, he just keeps writing on it, and so it has expanded again. And so he's going to read some more today once he gets on. 
that you're enjoying the, the uh, study and comparing um, the Aramaic to what we've been taught the scriptures say. And we did have one question come in by email. And so Michael's going to start off with that question when he gets on. And we will go from there. So if you do have a question, whether it's about the Aramaic, about the Enlightenment, um, or anything else, forgiveness process, press one, raise your hand, and uh, let us support you. Hi, Michael. Um, hey there, dear heart. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. And uh, I actually, as I'm reading this section that came out of working on the Enlightenment book many years ago, I, uh, I wrote more than I had realized. And I'm going to continue with it because it's, it's about creating a foundation for the mind to be able to process differently, to think differently, to, to actually enter into process. And in this work, we define processing as the ability to keep love conscious, active, and present when something less comes up. So that processing is a, a transformation that's taking place or a transmutation on an energy level. If I go back to my physics study, transmutation is the changing of one energy to another. So, you know, we have the sun, and we have a plant, and this plant has the ability to transmute the nutrients in the leaf in the presence of the sun into chlorophyll. So that's a transmutation. It's cha- or a transformation. You look at the word form being what exists in the world now as an energetic form. Transform goes beyond the form. So if there's no sun present, then there's no chlorophyll in the plant. There has to be at least light, perhaps not necessarily sun, but there has to be light. So a plant that exists in darkness doesn't ever transmute the substances or the energetic patterns within it into chlorophyll. And I'm expressing that because we have a question that came in. And the the question, I'll say, Audrey, I don't have translation work for what your question is, but I'll offer from the point of view of my work with the Aramaic and tying it back in with physics and such because that's an important key. You know, to me, the man Yeshua had nothing to do with theology. He was not a theologian. Any more than, let's say, a plant biologist. Of course, you know, chlorophyll is an important thing, so a plant biologist is really about the sun. But that doesn't mean sun worshiper. It's just the sun's part of the process. And Yeshua, as a physicist, as a psychologist, as a psychiatrist, as a geneticist is not a theologian any more than the plant biologist is a sun worshiper. Yes, plant biologist brings the sun into the equation, into the conversation. Yeshua brings the creator into the creation, the light, 
He says, you know, you are the light. You could say you are the transmuter. You are the power under which things are transmuted in the world. He says, I am the light. And then without changing anything but the pronoun, he says the same thing about you. And if we're in that state where we're living as active present love, where, where rather than love being some kind of a word that has to do with some venial form of approval or sexual athletics or putting your head on a chopping block so somebody knows that your sacrifice means they, you love them, all of that fake stuff about love. But one of the practices that Yeshua presented was that of bringing conscious active present love forward into physiology, into the world. And he gave formulas for doing that. So the question that was asked is, Yeshua says to a woman, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. And again, I don't have uh, translation work based on that one, but my my offering would be that here was a man who was in process of transforming, transfiguring his energy system, for want of a better term. Remember that because our mind can formulate a structure called a body, doesn't mean there's such a thing as a body out there. Oh, if, if we listen, you get a, a foundation out of this. If we listen to Einstein, he says, on such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. So my offering would be that in that case, he's going through a state of transformation. He's taking the, the work of removing the lower frequencies in his structure, perhaps genetic information, I don't know, of having those transmuted by having taken a new ability to capture the active energy of love in which we live, move, and have our being. Remembering that in Aramaic, the word prayer means to set a trap for God, which sounds kind of weird in, in our language, but when you think of it as uh, energy and energy signals being captured, you know, my TV antenna on, on the roof of the house, my favorite station being Channel 2, my TV antenna is a trap for Channel 2. It is an energy device that when properly aligned, properly structured, captures Channel 2 and is brings in a powerful signal where I get a clear picture and clear sound of what Channel 2 is broadcasting. So when we come into the world, we move through an energy field called love. You know, we're told, in him we live, move, and have our being. And, and the him is, is probably not a proper word to use, but saying it sounds kind of disrespectful. In the unfathomable, unknowable energy field that we call the creator, we live, move, and have our being. And we're designed to capture that, to be in prayer 24-7-365. But if carbon-based memory's got some other ideas, i.e., if you have a genetic inheritance, a cultural influence that includes hostility or fear, you're going to have to go into a transformational process to remove that. If you've ever been in one of our intensives, you'll remember the instruction set that I gave the first day or so 
is, you know, we're here to open a space for healing. And if the healing process is taking place, then what we're going to ask you to do is to be sensitive to it and be quiet, which would be kind of comparable to him saying, don't touch me. So in an intensive, you know, somebody goes into process, that transformation literally and everybody knows, may not know exactly what it is, may not have the brain cells, but knows that, wow, there's something really powerful happening here with this person. And you'll remember the instruction I give in the intensive is, if that starts, I'm going to ask you to just be quiet and be with what's happening. Breathe and be with what's happening. And if you have a burning question, like you're standing over there, we're working with this person that's going through a major process, and you're there, oh, you have this question, your hand's waving, I'm going to signal you to please be quiet, put your hand down, and just be in the space. And, you know, in that space, there are times where there hasn't been a word spoken in 10 minutes. That person's in such deep process. That would be like unto the state of Yeshua saying, don't touch me. There's a, a process happening here. And that energy field in which we live, move, and have our being is designed, I'd offer, to run to be the master energy that organizes, turns into organic structure, and reflects in our forms. However, if we've engaged in other energetic patterns, i.e., again, via genetics, via cultural programming, by childhood traumas, etc., then a different energy is, at that moment, running our energy system. And there's a veil, a barrier, the barrier between the subconscious and the unconscious that keeps those things hidden. And while they're hidden, they create effects in physiology. So when the veil opens and those energetic patterns are being transformed, the most powerful thing that everybody can do is just stand back and be the space of conscious, active, present love. And unless you're in as clean and clear a space as what this person is heading for, hands off, don't touch. Now, if you're in the space of totally in alignment with the transformation that's happening, then we might say, okay, Let's get that person to lay down on the table and breathe, and let's all put our hands on them. When, when everybody's aligned with that, we're not going to ask somebody who's over there, you know, in a snit because they're not getting the attention to put their hands on that person because it would be an interfering energy. So that would be my take. And, and so in this energy field, we live, move, and have our being, and if there are other energetic patterns that are less than the active presence of love, then we're going to have to go through that transformation process, through that healing process. And so when we're open to and can allow truth to pour into us, truth is like the sun that creates a transformation of everything that is less than itself. Active present love being synonymous with truth. You remember they said the creator's name was love and they said the creator's name was truth. Interchangeable words. That when I can open the veil of my own temple and allow that energy to come in, I mean, 
you'll oftentimes see people, especially when we're doing still point breathing, you'll see arms and legs popping, head bouncing, body move, all sorts of stuff going on as that transmutation takes place. So that I would I would offer again, and I'm not saying this is based on translation from the Aramaic. That's just my sense from doing this work. And so you asked the question, the second question was what is understood to be ascension in Aramaic. Again, I don't have that based on translation, but that would be my description of ascension. I'm going from lower energies. I've opened myself. I've, I've loosened my grip on the lower energies. I've opened myself to this higher presence of love, and I'm inviting it to come in. And as I breathe, it transforms every lower energy in me. The end result, if we were to, uh, to look at somebody's field, if we could look at, let's, let's imagine we've got a device that, that looks at a person's energy field and determines whether they are in the deepest, darkest pits of hell. They're at a, a one or whether they're in the state of absolute bliss and enlightenment, they're at a 10. If we did that, then someone who's going through the ascension process might be at a 5. They're breathing, they're open, the energy's moving, and when they complete the process, they're at a 10. That would be ascension. They'd be raising the frequency of the structure. And... Then your final question is, could you also please explain how the process of resurrection occurs? That would be what I would offer, is that resurrection is, you know, if you remember, Yeshua talked about allowing the dead to bury the dead. Most people, people are walking around doing the regular game of life hostility, fear, pain, trauma, drama. I would offer what Yesh would say, those are people who are dead. They're not awake to the truth of who they are as love. That's not the governing energy within their physiology. And so resurrection would be opening the space where the light comes on, where being awakens, where, you know, when he says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. What's he saying? I mean, how do you die and then live? If you are identified with your non-being mind, if that's who you think you are, then you're dead. And when you let go of identification with the non-being mind, the self, you come back to life. And the objective is to truly be alive, to truly live as a human being. So that would be my definition of resurrection. And then coming back to live again after being killed, how, does that, how is that possible? Well, if we think of life as the body, then when the body stops functioning, we call that death. But if we recognize that that's not life and that's not who we are, then we step into a different energy. So physiology can be clinically dead because the animating energy of being, the created essence, the soul, is disconnected. The animating energy is disconnected from form. They've actually done some 
some research where they've weighed on very sensitive equipment people dying and they've come up with if I remember correctly that the change in weight at the moment of that last breath is about three-fifths of an ounce concluding that the animating energy the soul whatever you want to call it the created essence has some mass to it so that would be my take on all three of those topics I hope that answers your questions if it doesn't and you're listening push one and let's talk about it see if there's any more clarity I can bring or if any of that brings up any thoughts for anyone else push one and let's uh, let's talk about it and and while we're waiting to see if the hand does go up uh, one of the objectives of this work is to support people understanding what processing is and to be able to step into processing again which would be many words would be quite interchangeable translation translation is to move from one dimension to another processing to move from one state of energy to another ascension to move from one state from a lower state to a higher state of energy resurrection bringing the animating influence in the form back into control and expression through the form So, Ms. Jeannie, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anybody in the phone queue with a hand up, or should we just rock and roll? You, you do have a hand up, and it's Miss Susan, 610. Oh. You are on the air. Hey, folks. Woo! Michael, that is amazing. I've never heard that um, take, as you call it, my take, um, of why Jesus said, don't touch me, but... Yeah, it's like don't get you I have, don't get any interfering energy until I've completed this process. Yeah, I love it. And It'll it be might kind of, help kind of like I'm it. making jam. I'm making jam, and I don't <laughs> want the kid with the the dirty fingers to come and stick his finger in the jam. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, I I have the Bible, uh, George Lumps's translation from the Aramaic, and right. I know that a lot of this didn't get the adjustments he would have liked. But I've been using that as my text for a new chancel opera on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, 22 to 26. This is the less known Jesus healing of the blind man where he spits on his fingers and touches Jesus' eyes. Yeah. And so I was thinking, in any healing my question is, is any healing process probably involves something like that transformation. And Jesus did something that we humans can relate to because he used dirt, he used his fingers, but I don't think anybody else's dirt and fingers would have done the trick. It's something and about... And spit. And spit. <laughs> All right. Um... You know, but you remember, he didn't singing. take credit for it. Remember, no, he didn't I'm say not, it wasn't It was him. Right. Okay. Uh, I feel as if you just threw a wrench into my whole thought process. Um, did you think that I thought that he did it? I mean, what what are you thinking? Well, when you said, I don't think anybody else's mud and spit would have done the job. I, I would oh, be, I you know, I would probably agree with you, 
because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he becomes the energy of support. And if somebody's got a deep transmutation that needs to take place like blindness, that's going to be a pretty mm-hmm. deep level of energy moving. It's going to take a whole lot of support. And to be mm-hmm. clean and clear enough to be that space to oh, support yeah. that work that the blind man was ready to do uh, definitely would be take a great deal of clarity and purity. This passage is very short. Can I read it aloud? Um, it's like Go four for verses. Okay. And he came, Jesus, to Bethsaida, and they brought to him a blind man, they mean the disciples, and they besought him to touch him. So he had already been touching people and healing. Anyway, continuing. And he took the blind man by the hand and brought him outside the town, and he spat on his arms and put his hands on him and asked him what he saw. And, he, and the man looked and said, I see men like trees walking. And Jesus put his hands over the man's eyes again, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his house saying, do not even enter into the town, nor tell it to anyone in the town. So, but my question, I just wanted to read that in case anything jumped out in those words to you so that you could sort of retell me the story. I'm, I'm having to jump start. I've been stuck. I've been lying around, walking around, trying to write music. It's not coming. Something that comes kind of stinks and I throw it away. It's not anything that I would want to keep yet. And I'm waiting for the log jam to bust open. And when you were talking about, yeah, go ahead. I can tell you're ready to talk. Well, I, I had just checked. I was going to ask if you had, if one, if you knew, and two, if you'd seen it, that the next series of The Chosen was in movie theaters this past weekend. No, I haven't. And that oh, was, do they do that, that was scene? What, they did that scene, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. And I was just looking to see if it was still on. And what they did was episodes one, two, and three this mm-hmm. weekend. And I just looked in the local theater here to see if that was still on. And I see, and I didn't know this, they didn't even make this announcement. We went and saw it this weekend, somebody's recommendation. But uh, now they've got season four, five, and six on. I, I was not aware of that, but they're doing it now, uh, the second half of the new uh, chosen season. So I assume that means so you, one, two, and three are gone where they did that scene. And do you think it might go to Netflix? Because I know Netflix, isn't it Netflix? Oh, no, it's its own, it's its own thing, uh, its own station. I have the app. Yeah, they're talking about bringing it out. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what the schedule well, is, but yeah. Yeah, oh, I'd love to see it. Uh, you know, that would be... So I wonder if, because, you know, metaphors open a space, and mm-hmm. if you were to look at this blindness as being a metaphor, not for physical blindness, but for spiritual blindness... Mm-hmm. You know, sure. having the eyes to see and going from the space where not having the eyes to see, we do not perceive, not having the ears to hear, we do not hear. 
then maybe right. there's a way to uh, to bring that into expression through that parable. I or just maybe there's a... It says that um, one, two, and three will show after it's debuted in the theaters. So it should be coming out real soon. Oh, boy. It might be on the app now. What season is that, Michael? Four. Six, I believe. Four. Four. It's season four. Yeah, season four. And they've got seven seasons planned. Wow. So you might check the app and it might be there, but... You know, when I use the, the metaphor of the sun and the chlorophyll, maybe somehow that could come together and you could turn the metaphor of blindness being about not physical blindness but spiritual blindness into seeing in a new way uh, oh, rather than through the old brain cells. Oh, yeah. That is so true. And I don't know whether I'm going to attempt to convey that in this chancel opera because they are pretty, these are for use in the worship service in place of the sermon, and a certain amount right. of midrash is, is welcome, but I, I'm, I'm not sure how far I could go with that. I know what you're saying, and I think about it for myself. Um, when I was very young, in my early 20s, I was going blind, and I became to the point where I couldn't read or drive or see very well and no doctor could diagnose it I saw seven doctors and the the sixth one said I think you need a psychiatrist and I was sure that was true but then my father-in-law I know (laughs) but by then I was thinking in my nuts you know but then my father-in-law who lived in Washington said I have a great eye doctor down here I'm going to bring you down I went down, walked into his office, and across the room, he said, I know what's wrong. And it was a corneal distortion, severe corneal distortion from using non-gas permeable contact lenses, which was, were being hmm. prescribed back then. And being brown-eyed, right. I didn't have the nerves that a blue-eyed person, I was wearing them much too long. I was in college wearing them. Sometimes I would fall asleep with them in. Very bad. The eyes were deprived of oxygen. Deprived of oxygen, yeah. Yeah. And so he did one, and it was just miraculous. So I have a particular affinity for this story. Blind man, for sure. I hear that. Yeah. Man, so nevertheless... um, I'm just waiting for the muse to show up, and I'm hoping they will. So, we'll both tap in and hold the space for the muse and the right thanks. metaphor or the right expression to come. Yeah, and if you have a thought, too. I mean, I love this story, and it isn't the story. The more famous one is, was this man born blind because his parents did something bad, or is he bad? Right. You know? But this one's Actually, shorter. that's the one that is in in the the chosen. I was mistaken. Oh. It wasn't the the, the smaller uh, situation. It was the one where they asked that question. Well, that's not surprising, so, since this is much yeah. shorter and less dramatic. Although, right. still, I want yeah. to see it though. Good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well. Well, I'll look forward to I hearing love- what you see. 
<laughs> or hearing what I hear. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be nice? So, yeah, your book is reminds me of what Dr. Kim's been talking on about on his show is Elizabeth Gilbert has been practicing the kind of journal writing where she calls it um, prayer for two, recept, uh, prayer not only from your end but from God's end, a dialogue with love. She calls it love, not right. God. She's been practicing this for about 20 years or 25 years. And mm. there was a po- couple of podcasts done on it where the hosts of the podcast, Glennon Doyle and her sister Amanda and Glennon's partner, um, her name escapes me at the moment, but anyway, they decided they were going to have a letter. They were going to write a letter from love to themselves. And the results are amazing. And Dr. Tim has been reading them over the, he read the most recent one, which is the the most mind-blowing one of all on his radio show. It's like God is right there ready to talk if we will just listen. But most of us think God really isn't there or really isn't going to say anything or that we have to figure out what God's going to say and we've got to be one step ahead and all this other stuff. But what you're doing with your book, Michael, you're, you're going through the enlightened book, enlightenment book and having your dialogue, it is very similar, I think. Cool. Well, you know, uh, the bottom line is all you have to do is be out of your mind to be able to listen to that, that direct right. <laughs> input, you know. So. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe that's of, a um, go ahead sweetie there's also a movie Will Smith was in it called Collateral Beauty where he needed answers and he wrote letters uh, to love to time and to death have you seen that one no it's an excellent movie yeah, All right, powerful. Will Smith it's called Collateral well, Beauty Collateral beauty. Thanks. All right. Well, um, I'll get off, Michael, so you can keep reading. But all right, young lady, uh, you have a blessed one. Yeah. We'll hold Thanks. space for that Thank muse. You. All right. Thank take you. care. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye. There's no other hands up, so continue with your reading. Okay. Let's go for it. So we finished up yesterday, and actually, I uh, we're there's more in, in this book than I remembered having written. I uh, had uh, done more than I realized. So, so we'll carry on because it uh, it's a direct result of the interaction, and I think it addresses how to be that space, how to listen in a, a different way. Uh, again, one of the things, the objective being to get the mind out of the way. Once the mind is given answers to its questions, it's able to shut up. So, so I'm going to just finish with the last page or so that we finished with yesterday, or start with that. And uh, he talks about Paul 
suffice to say that the mind that has not done its own work is appropriately described by Paul when he says, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever thou art that judgest, for when thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest does the same things. Yeshua goes on and says, Humankind is not in need of more judgment, especially from one thinking they represent me. For one who condemns is simply caught in an error corresponding to the error of the person they condemn. It's time for humanity to get the truth. I came to deliver the tools for each individual to manifest the love of God in their lives and the lives of those who could not do it for themselves, whatever their error. Clearly, I did not come to deliver reasons for war, separation, dogma, condemnation, and fault-finding. I said, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. You know, in the place where we're told it says, uh, I came not to destroy the law, but to... What is the translation that's normally given? Oh, but, but to fulfill... In Aramaic, it doesn't say to fulfill. It says to add unto your understanding of the law. To expand on that, he that rejects me and receives not my words already has one that judges him. The words I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, and, and today, every day is the last day. Today is the day of judgment i.e., not if somebody's standing back and going, oh, I'm going to condemn you to this, but the day where whatever our creative process is comes into expression, comes into manifestation. That's judgment day. It's not some big threatening thing that's going to happen sometime later, and Yeshua is not involved. <laughs> he's, not, he's not taking on that job. He was really clear when he was here before it wasn't his job and he wasn't interested in doing it, and he's not waiting for, you know, thousands of years to pass by, and then he's going to come and sweep down and do it as those who work with the mind of man. And the command I was given is life everlasting. And he informs us that's what he came to speak about. I came to save the world mind from its own insanity and has carried on with all its old conflicts, family squabbles, wars, and reasons for separation, religious condemnation, etc., as though I had never spoken. The killing, psychological, emotional, and physical has continued as if I had demonstrated nothing. Only now, it's often done in my name. Your world is in danger of self-destruction, much of it over theological conflict and debate. It's time for the insanity done in the name of love to end, and for the work I demonstrated to actually be carried out. It's time for a suffering humanity to experience the active presence of the love of God, whoever they are, whatever their form of suffering whatever they've done, whatever they need to be condemned for, according to the world. Condemnation, studying, debate, and war will not bring healing. But the active presence of love will. 
My heart opened and tears began to flow, and I could feel years of old trauma melting away instantly. Susan, this is what I would think the blind man was going through at that moment. In that same instant, without conscious prompting from me, my mind shifted into excitement. Could it be, after all, you know, at this point I've been studying. studying. I thought studying was the key for decades. Could it be, after all these years of study, I'm finally beginning to hear the truth? And here it is, my opportunity to ask directly. I was awestruck. So as often happens for us when we're functioning as non-humans, or we still have a non-human mind active in us, once a new insight comes, then the mind, resonated by that new level of empowerment, brings up its next objection, its next unresolved conflicting energy. That's why you so often hear me say you've got to be out of your mind. You have to get your mind to the point where it shuts up, that you're not locked in and trying to figure something out, but literally that you actually get to that point of, you know, the instruction was given, be still and know. The mind can't know. Only being can know. So I went from this state of excitement and elation and insight to then, almost as quickly, my mind went into fear. With an abruptness that even startled me, I blurted out, what about the church fathers? Certainly they understood. Yeshua says, pay attention to me. How do you expect to find the meaning of my teachings when you ignore my instructions and look for me where I am not? He captured my full attention. I spoke, taught, and thought in Aramaic, not Greek. Perhaps my input, the meanings I put forward, in the context in which I originally meant them, might be more valuable than those Greek experts. Do you honestly think if my students did not grasp the depth of what I taught after three years of personal instruction from my own lips, that the Greek minds that established your Western traditions had a chance of grasping what I alone understood and have been able to apply. And, of course, you know, just think about who else has produced the fruit that he did. Two thousand years ago, my message was beyond the comprehension of the world mind. It is time for my message to be understood. My sole desire for you is that you believe me when I tell you he that believeth in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do. And that it isn't just a mind intellectual belief, but enters into the process of transformation and is living those words. And then we come to a next chapter, the core problem, being waxed gross, which is a quote from the scriptures that we'll get into. I started to grasp for the first time what he meant when he said, therefore I speak to them in parables. 
because they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And then is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah who said, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. You can read Isaiah, and that's what Isaiah says. He, he categorizes the problem. And their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart. To realize that your mind, because of your belief that you already understand me, limits your ability to hear my deeper teachings, that your mind is wax gross, wax gross, as Isaiah called it, is a mind hypnotized by its own internal messages. Its ability to hear stifled by the simple presence of hostility and or fear. A heart waxed gross can see life only through the lens of its own patterned limitations. A person who is waxed gross is one so imbued with the idea that their problems are external that they are innocent victims and that their minds cannot even generate a reality that demonstrates awareness that they're involved in their lives. Such a mind is so entangled in turmoil, the turmoil of anger, fear, rage, guilt, and condemnation, that everything it sees, the mind wax gross actively resists producing a reality that reflects actual responsibility. This is wax gross. The solution lies in undoing, that is, forgiving the big lie that all the problems are out there and building the brain cells for functioning out of actual responsibility. It's interesting that... uh, We'll often hear people and they're like, well, I know what the problem is. I just need to resolve it. No. The very nature of being is that if you, if the mind can yield up, if the space is there for the underlying problem to surface, it is automatically transformed by the presence of love. So if you think you know and it's not fixed, quote, unquote, you're not done with it yet, it's because you don't know. Take it to the next level. Do the next worksheet and uncover the next level of what needs to be dealt with. Until you can live the first law. Remember what the first law was? Rachma. You're able to keep this filter in the frontal lobes of your brain open so that love is present in you totally and completely continuously. So until you can live the first law, until the higher understanding of life that I'm presenting, until an awareness that matches or surpasses mind pervades it, your mind is so full of mistaken beliefs about life that, like the average human being that has not done the requisite inner work, my light cannot penetrate it. 
invite my light to penetrate your mind. Until then, you are only capable of understanding at the lowest levels because you are locked into the worldly definitions of my words. Don't expect to find the understanding I hold for my words in your culture's dictionaries. My meanings can only be written by one who has experienced the fullness of what I have to teach. Enmeshed in what it thinks it knows, a mind waxed gross, the world mind, cannot hear or understand what I taught. Why have there been so many atrocities committed by those who claim to be doing them in my name? Their minds are waxed gross. And some pretty gross things have been done in the name of Yeshua. To intimidate, to incite fear, to exalt suffering, to judge, to punish, to condemn to hell, under the mantle of my name is a perversion of my work and words by those whose minds were waxed gross with the world's ways. Next year, I'm making some notes as we go. My purpose was to teach and demonstrate the power of staying connected to love, your essential nature, in any and every circumstance. This is what a true teacher of my work will express, even in the most dire situation. Until you understand and can do that, it cannot be said that in any way you represent me. If there's anything in your life that you cannot stay connected to love in the presence of, anything you cannot hold a space of love for, don't kid yourself into thinking you know what I taught, for that ability is the very foundation upon which all of my teaching rests. You must even be prepared to hold that space, as I did, for your own death. Have rotten for neighbor. In Aramaic, that means anyone you think about. And for self is the first law. This is the protocol for understanding me and the scriptures. The protocol which, when embodied, empowers you to fully comprehend and actually live out of my deepest teachings. Notice that I demonstrated how to express that protocol in very real terms the day of my crucifixion. When I said the second commandment in the law was, Thou shalt have rachma for thy neighbor as thyself, I actually meant it. I taught that commandment not because it was a nice thing to do, but because it was a pathway to healing yourself and inoculating yourself against human insanity. Inoculating yourself against the mind of man and against all diseases. I did not go through that experience of crucifixion to demonstrate the excellence of suffering, sacrifice, and death, but to illustrate the power of living a life based in love. That was my intended message. I stood connected to my essential nature, love, while I faced being tortured and killed. I couldn't wait to respond. I broke in, yes, and because you did not fight and did not escape, when you had the chance, they killed you. Yeshua corrects me. <laughs> That's your mind wax gross in its own fear. You don't get it yet, Michael. No, I did not fight or run. Yes, because I did not fight or run, they quote-unquote killed me. 
Then came my opportunity, the purpose I came to earth to fulfill. I demonstrated the power of conscious, active, present love, the protocol that I'm suggesting you live up to. It is love that resurrected and healed me. And it is the birthright of each of us to live connected to that love continuously. That was the only message I delivered throughout the entire course of my life. Everything I taught was to reconnect humanity to that one source, the spirit of truth. And anyone who hears and integrates that message will drop condemnation, fear, intimidation, and guilt and heal themselves by simply forgiving and living out of the mind of love. I demonstrated the power of being connected to love or essential nature, but it was invisible to them. You must, however, if you genuinely wish to represent me, embody that message. If you're going to understand and express what I taught, the only thing to learn is how to stay in harmony with your created nature, love, instead of being run by your fabricated nature, the one rooted in fear and hostility. Love is life itself. It is the source of our real power as human beings. It was so powerful that it restructured my torn body and restored it to life. Be aware that insecure outer authority is trapped in the world mind and in dogma promoted by those who did not understand will want to make me or themselves your source. But you must make contact with and learn to live out of your essential nature and your connection to source, not mine. My words indicated once again how difficult it is for the mind to hold to my instructions when you've been captured by the world mind in its imaginings. You must learn to manage your own mind and break off from being at the effect of the world. Here's another way in which I said it. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot hear it. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, Ruka de Kutcha has come, and we need to change that because in Aramaic it's it that that elemental force is feminine. She will guide you into all truth. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot hear them now. Howbeit when Ruka is come she will guide you into all truth. Remember the definition of Ruka de Kutcha from Aramaic. She, a feminine elemental force, who undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. That's all part of that transformation. That's all part of that resurrection. That's all part of ascension. That's the energy, the shift that takes place. The condition that will make that power active in you is the willingness to honor truth. No matter it brings up in you. And to honor love so much that you will hold to it regardless of circumstance. And you can always tell 
who somebody's God is by what they turn to in their moments of stress. If you babble on about God and love and all that stuff, but under stress you turn to hostility or fear, you've got to get honest with yourself. That's your God. Like, stop pretending you have any concern for that one called love. Because you will turn to your gods in moments of stress. And you can tell exactly what they are. And for most people, it's their power persons. That's the dynamic that runs them. So this is the condition that will will make that power active in you. Protocol. First order business, you know, somebody goes to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, yeah, you've got the ABC disease and I know exactly how to how to take care of that. Here's the protocol. And you take the protocol and you look at the first line of it and you go, eh, well, you know, the rest of it looks pretty good to me, but I'm not going to do that first one. Can you justifiably go back to the doctor and say his protocol didn't work? No, you didn't apply it. What did Yeshua say the protocol is? This is the 11 most important words ever spoken. This condition of rachma in your mind, upon this and these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. This is the protocol he laid out. As I said, when I first, when that realization came, I got on the phone with everybody that I knew in the religious life, nuns, priests, ministers, rabbis, everybody that I knew. And and in in total, it was something over around 100 years of, of religious experience between all these different people. And not one of them had a clue there was a protocol. Not one of them had the, uh, uh, a comprehension of the import of those words, that the whole thing hangs on this. Well, who would you go to? Would you go to a lawyer and say, okay, here's the protocol for beating that charge? Would you go to a banker and say, here's the protocol for making that kind of money? Would you go to a doctor and say, here's the protocol and when you're told it, you say, oh, well, no, I'm not going to do it. I want to produce a result, but I don't want to do that. No? Okay. So how do you get that to happen? Gateway. Rockman needs to be open. The condition that will make that power active in you is the willingness to honor truth and love so much that you hold to it regardless of circumstances. Lip service. Won't do it. It must be a personal experience, personally experienced. If fear or hostility enters your words or your mind, you have not yet mastered my message. I came to connect you with the spirit of truth in you, not some outer authority. In Aramaic, my words pointed to these understandings. Different from those that fill the mind of one trained in the ways of the world. There is not room in my intent for my intent and message in such a mind. That is why, unless they're ready to break free from the grip of the world mind, I chose simple fishermen the untrained instead of the educated to learn and teach my work.
recall how often and how many ways I said, why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my words? The mind structure and the ways of the world cannot accurately perceive the intended meaning of my words because it cannot see past its own content, cannot produce realities that do not match what it thinks it already knows. It is wax gross, hypnotized by its own internal meanings. There is much to give up, much to make room for, for the understanding of my work to be able to perceive me truly and accomplish what I did. To even hear me. By giving up, I did not mean sacrifice, but the release of the untrue, the misunderstandings, the hostilities, the fears, the behaviors in your life that only appear to work from you. You must disable the fear-based mind. It is not a giving up that means loss, but rather one that brings gain because it makes room for the blessings of truth. And it's not for the faint-hearted to move from a culture that has language that says, you made me angry, you made me sad, you made me afraid. Remember, anybody that uses that language is a card-carrying member of the one world universal religion of blame. If you don't train your mind to have a conversation about what you are wax growth by, then there's never going to be room in that mind for truth. Notice there are those who promote victimhood as though it were a virtue. And tomorrow we'll start with that. Or pardon me, Monday. Tomorrow we're off. And we hold the space. You had an awesome weekend for those that are joining us for Mind Shifters and Still Point Breathing. Remember to do the writing of your Mind Shifter and at uh, 11 o'clock tomorrow, Eastern Time. We'll step into the Mind Shifters and Still Point Breathing Club tomorrow and Sunday. If uh, if you would like to join us, you can do that still. If you drop Jeannie an email, J-E-A-N-I-E at org, we can get you to set up to join us. And otherwise, have an awesome weekend. The best year yet of your eternal life is coming up. I look forward to sharing with you. Blessings. Bye-bye.